It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking thirteen. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck. My name is Professor Dermot Hudson. In this podcast, I wanted to talk about a new undergraduate module that we're launching at Birkbeck called Politics and the Arts. The purpose of this module is to introduce students to the representation of politics in the arts broadly defined that covers fiction, poetry, film, television, for example. We'll look at works uh, such as William Butler Yeats's Easter 1916, Jay Bernard's Surge. We'll look at Raoul Peck's film Lumumba. We'll look at Ken Loach's The Wind That Shakes the Barley. We'll look at the work of political playwrights such as Carol Churchill, David Hare, Roy Williams, Clint Dyer. And we'll look at these works and ask and debate how they represent politics, how they engage with the big questions of politics, questions about democracy, representation, rights and revolution. So this is a fantastic opportunity to really engage with these works of political art, to learn about them, to learn how to talk about them, and to use it to shed light on our understanding of politics. George Orwell's 1984 is probably the most famous work of political art. It's still a bestseller more than half a century after its publication. So in this podcast, I wanted to uh, devote a bit of time to talking about the politics of 1984, particularly its first chapter. And I could not invite my colleague, Dr. Ben Worthy, uh, our department's resident expert in Orwell, to join in this discussion. Over to you, Ben, to tell us why Orwell still matters. Uh, I first read 1984 uh, when I was 16, and I think it was one of the first truly political books I read. And I've read it semi-regularly, kind of probably once a decade. Each time I'm actually astonished by how different it is and what different things uh, I take from it. I think, and I've read um, some of the books kind of associated with it that came before, that came after. It's one of the most fully realised portraits of what it must be like to live under a dictatorship, one of the dictatorships of the 20th century. And why is it important? Uh, because Orwell was trying to make a few statements. One statement was a warning to people about how easy it was for dictatorships to arrive. And, and another thing he was trying to do to come back to the to the theme of the module was to write in such a way as to make it a kind of artistic statement as well as um, a political warning. Very much a successor to the book he wrote before, which was Animal Farm, which was again a, 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 the telling of a fairy tale, which was also uh, the telling of the Russian Revolution and the idea as to why revolutions can fail because of kind of the failings of. Uh, human behaviour, human greed, and um, and the problems that that vast changes always bring up in terms of betrayal. In terms of the first chapter, um, I I adore the opening few lines of 1984 when you see this individual Winston Smith, as you later find out his name is, which is of course a typical English name combined with the first name of the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Winston Churchill, when uh, all was writing this. And um, it talks about it being a cold, uh, dark day in April, very English scene, um, and the clocks were striking 13. And we've had a bit of a discussion about the significance of the clock striking 13, which suddenly transport you into a very different place from where you think you are 
Um, this is followed by, of course, Winston Smith arriving at these grimy blocks of flats, which famously and wonderfully smell of cabbage, um, which is what I remember my school smelled of as well. And uh, then beginning uh, this very dangerous activity, which is the attempt to keep a diary. And another thing to flag up is that because of the vast control that the party has, not only is there a television watching him from the wall, which is an immense piece of foresight for somebody writing more or less before the television was popularised, um, but also as he begins to write in his diary, he doesn't even know what date it is because such is the control of the party over what he does. He's not even sure when it is or when he was born or his memories from the past. So let's let's air our differences on the clock struck 13 um, from the opening line of 1984. I guess I read it in two ways. One was that when a clock strikes 13, it's usually a sign that the clock is broken. Um, and it was putting us on warning that everything's not what it seems. And I guess I'd read it as the kind of mirror of the two plus two equals four, right? This uh, this this kind of statement of of kind of uh, this this tautology, the statement of absolute truth that O'Brien tries to get um, uh, Winston Smith to reject in the book. You know, so you know the dominance of the party over the the inner thoughts and the very idea of logic. And so I see it as a kind of parallel of that, right? You know, we're trying to kind of stretch the meaning of, of numbers and logic. I also read it as a kind of military term, right? It's the, the 24 o'clock was in usage on and off in the UK, but it's a kind of nod to who's really running uh, the world in 1984. That's not the Soviet Union. That's not Germany. It's the US. Yeah, I think you might be right. I had a totally different conclusion. Um, but I haven't been able to find any evidence for it. I believed that when the clock struck 13, it was a signal that somebody was going to die. Um, and I'd always had that in my head ever since I'd read 1984. But even after our conversation, I Googled it. I could find very little evidence except in a few horror stories um, that that was the case. Um, but it does indicate, like you say, that this is a very different place. And that's one of the spooky things about 1984. In the way that it blends the familiarity of being in an antique shop or going for a walk in the countryside in this very English way with this very kind of deeply different and terrifying place. And and, and the place was so well drawn as a kind of totalitarian regime run by Big Brother that when illegal copies were, 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 were snuck into the Soviet Union that was still under Stalin, the people who read it presumed that it was written by somebody close to Stalin rather than a kind of Englishman up in the... Uh, up, up in the Scottish islands. Extraordinary. I mean, your reference to place makes me think of what was supposed to be the original title of the book, which was not 1984, but The Last Man in Europe. And I find that a very confusing title, actually, because um, there is a reference in the book when O'Brien finally interrogates Winston Smith, where he he says to, um, uh, you know, Winston, what's driving you? And he said, well, I think it's the spirit of man. The spirit of man will defeat the party. And, and he says, O'Brien says to him, well, do you consider yourself a man? Yes. Well, in that case, you're the last man. But the reference to Europe still throws me, especially as a Europe scholar. Um, and I guess the most sense I can make of it is the fact that um, if you think about the kind of geographic areas in this book, right, you've got Oceana, uh, Airstrip, Britain is re- renamed Airstrip 1, and it's in an alliance with what we would think of as the kind of Anglosphere, so the US, Australia. Um, we have Eurasia um, and we have East Asia. So I read Oceana as a kind of proxy for NATO. If you think about when the book was written, 
1947, we see the beginnings of NATO emerge. Orwell is watching these military alliances come together and he's fearful about what they might mean. I agree with you entirely that that is the kind of vision that I always um, thought about this, about the world's into three power blocks. And I think he writes about that in, in essays before as well, doesn't he? This is the chapter in which we meet Big Brother. We meet him first as a, as a kind of image on a poster and then in the two-minute hey, There's a huge debate about who Big Brother stands for. I mean, visually, he recalls um, Joseph Stalin with the moustache, possibly Hitler. Uh, but there's another reading of it. It's the initials are the giveaway. And I, I find one of the most chilling uh, parts of this first chapter, the, the, the repetition of BB again and again. And uh, BB was the nickname and the initials of Brendan Bracken, who was a press baron, who was a close friend of Churchill and who was part of uh, the war effort. He joined the cabinet. And um, I think it's sometimes easy to misread this as a book that's just about Russia, right? I think this is a book about totalitarianism, authoritarianism of a homegrown kind, as well as an international one. Orwell is worrying out loud in this book about what it means to be an author and a kind of independent voice in a society where you have people like Brendan Bracken uh, very close to power. And uh, and uh, he, he worries about the, the risk of censorship and self-censorship. Um, and I think he's written about this brilliantly in an essay that doesn't get enough attention. It's called The Prevention of Literature. People often focus on Orwell's um, Politics in the English Language, which is a fine essay, if I think a little bit outdated in terms of the kind of clarity he wants people to write with. But in the prevention of literature, he says that the, the kind of hallmark of a liberal society is the ability of authors to think uh, out loud, to not check themselves, to be creative. And even the slightest check on this, he argues, is ultimately going to undermine uh, the ability of an author to create. I don't think he has high expectations for what an author can do to push back against a totalitarian regime. The kind of causality runs the other way for Orwell. He's sure in his mind, that the author, in the true sense of the word, will disappear in, in, in a regime of totalitarianism because you will have to check your creativity. And I, th- I think this is communicated really well in the prevention of literature. Um, and there's a, an idea about the, the author will become just a kind of operator of a Meccano set, building, you know, it's not the creative works disappear, it's just their meaning disappears. And we see this in the opening chapter of 1984 when we meet Julia. What's Julia's job? Julia's job is in the fiction department. And what, what does that involve? Well, it's a machine. It's a machine of the kind that we see in Orwell's The Prevention of Literature. She's wearing overalls. She has a spanner. She's, she's working on some contraption that produces fiction. And so Orwell is telling us, I think, in this first chapter, that this is not about the Soviet Union, that this is about internal um, surveillance and, and, and uh, the risk of, of a kind of totalitarian turn within Britain. One of the times I read it recently, I was struck by how much it contributed the book to this debate about objective truth and truth. And I think in one of his essays, he does say that, you know, that I think it's on his, some of his reflections on this, his involvement in the Spanish Civil War, um, where he talks about what scared him more than bombs was the loss of objective truth. And I think this is a running theme throughout the book and the need uh, for there to retain this objective truth. Later in the book, Winston comes across a piece of evidence that directly contradicts something uh, the big brother says. And for a moment, he holds the evidence in his hands um, that what is said is wrong, but there's nothing uh, he can do with it. And that's one of the really scary scenarios. And of course, something that we're all thinking about now, not least with uh, Trump in America. 
So a question to finish with, and it's a relevant one for thinking about Trump and Trumpism. Um, we see the term Orwellian uh, really constantly in kind of public discourse, and it seems to be having a resurgence at the moment among the right. You know, we're, we're told that lockdown is Orwellian. We're told that Joe Biden's infrastructure plans are Orwellian. Do you think or, or the term Orwellian still has meaning? I think it's it's a bit like, well, Orwell said about the word fascism. It's been so misused that it's incapable of saying very much. I mean, uh, one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that Orwell, because after he read 1984, he didn't, he, he didn't live very long afterwards, but he was very keen to point out to people that, like you said, this was not an attack on socialism. It was not intended, even though it's Ingsoc, the English Socialist Party in charge, um, the, the Nazis also had the word socialism in their title. So it's, um, it's actually warning, as you say, about all totalitarian regimes. And the problem with Orwellian is it's banded around as an insult without people fully thinking about what Orwell would have made about the use of that. It's definitely become a term on the right, particularly in America, uh, to attack the left. And I think Orwell would have been absolutely horrified um, by that kind of use because with the Republicans versus AOC, you know, he'd have been very much on the AOC side. I, just to just to pick up on, on what you said about creative freedom, I always go on about this scene uh, when he's sleeping and um, he's dreaming about the English countryside and he wakes up uh, and he says he has the word Shakespeare on his lips. And I think to Orwell, Shakespeare is the ultimate symbol of artistic freedom, the ultimate person who was able to write and talk as he wanted and make a difference to how we understand artistic processes. And in a way, it's kind of that vision of Shakespeare as a free artist against this totalitarian society that we can think about this book. For more information about politics and the arts and other modules on offer in the Department of Politics at Birkbeck, you can visit our website at www.bbk.ac.uk forward slash politics.